Imagine an eight-year-old king. What it would be like to have an eight-year-old king? Imagine what it would be like to have an eight-year-old president. Imagine what it would be like to have an eight-year-old pastor. Isn't that interesting? A boy monarch, Josiah. One of the coolest stories in the Bible is of an eight-year-old king about Anthony Samson's age. You're younger. Anybody eight years old here? Raise your hand if you're eight years old. Oh, yeah. Ethan. Ethan the king. Imagine that. That'd be kind of cool. How many of you would butter him up if he was the king? Yeah. And he's a great guy. I'd be tempted to do that anyway. Imagine that. It's just amazing. And you read a story about Josiah the king, and you see that, it, that what he does just kind of gets better and better and better. He overcomes idolatry, and then he discovers the book of the law, and he restores the uh, uh, regard that people have for the law of God. He, he tears his clothes. He, he weeps and mourns. There's a revival in Judah because of this king. Wonderful story. Don't you just love reading this story of Josiah? And there's some beautiful things that are said about Josiah. But then there is this time when this, uh, this, uh, this Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, is going to come through. Everybody goes back and forth through the land that we call the Holy Land today. Back and forth. Whenever somebody's going to have a battle, they go right through that area. And and Pharaoh Necho is going to go north and he's going to uh, try to defend the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Remember, we were talking about Nineveh's fall and how the Assyrians were falling now to the Babylonians. And he's going to go, Josiah says, no, you're, you can't. Normally they would allow other kings and their armies to go through and Egypt had a powerful army. Josiah says, no. And Josiah and the, and, and the army of Judah goes out to cut them off in Megiddo. It's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. I think the first time I read it, I choked back tears. Here this king that we've grown to love and admire is killed in battle. And the people mourn. They, they take his body back to Jerusalem and they weep and they mourn and they give him an honorable burial. And God mercifully allows Josiah to die as he promised he would. He allows Josiah to die before Josiah has to see Judah go into Babylonian captivity. Josiah's grandfather was a guy named Manasseh. He was bad news. Really bad. Manasseh, though, was afflicted by God and taken off into Assyrian captivity. Assyrians, I think we talked about this last Sunday night, they had some pretty graphic and awful ways of doing things. They drug Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, off into captivity where mercifully... He repented. Don't, don't ever think just because you're old, you can't still repent. Just because you've made a mess of things all your life, doesn't mean you still can't repent tonight. He repented. The Bible says so. Second Chronicles 33, 12 and 13. Now when he was in, infli- in affliction, he implored the Lord as God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, prayed to him and received his entreaty. God, he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. 
Ammon was Manasseh's son. And Ammon didn't repent like his dad, but Manasseh's life overlapped the life of his grandson Josiah by a few years. I just kind of wonder if Grandpa had some influence on his grandson. And out of Josiah's life came this beautiful time in Israel when the people for a time turned back to God. And how beautiful is it in the nation when the people are following God and they regard the Word of God. Josiah regarded the Word of God and God blessed Josiah's reign and the people mourned when he died. And then there'd be a little bit of... uh, There'd be a little bit of... um, disorganization, but eventually one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, would reign. Among other things, he was famous for taking a part of the Bible and burning it. Here, Josiah found the Word of God, and he restored it. His grandson took the words from the prophet Jeremiah, and he burned them. I wonder how he died. Jeremiah 22 18 and 19. Therefore says the Lord God concerning Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. He didn't even get to be buried in Jerusalem. They buried him like a dog. They buried him like a donkey. Interesting. You say, what in the world does this have to do with Habakkuk? Well, the force of the truth of a book lands on you greatly when you really understand the people that the book is speaking to. And this is the circumstance. These are the people of Judah who had been under the reign of Josiah and the blessing of God during the reign of Josiah And now when Habakkuk prophesies, when Habakkuk delivers this burden, it's during the reign of Jehoiakim. It's most likely during this time is a time when God's people have strayed far from where they ought to be. And it causes Habakkuk, the prophet, to cry out to God, God, why are you letting the people behave this way? Why are you letting the people behave this way, God? You see it in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble and plundering and violence are before me? There's strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Our country is destroy God. Why are you letting this happen? And I cry out to you, how long will I cry and you won't hear? Habakkuk's problem is a very common one. God is good and he's powerful and he's all loving. Then why does he let bad things happen? The fancy word for this is theodicy. It's that struggle that people have. The problem of evil, they call it. So God is powerful, all-powerful, and he good and can control everything, then why does he let bad things happen to me? And how many of us have prayed a prayer to God? God, how long am I going to have to pray about this? Why are you letting this happen? You could change this, God. For honest, I wonder how many of us would say, I prayed that same prayer. This is the prayer of Habakkuk. 
as the prophecy of Habakkuk opens, it is a unique literary form that we have here. You know, normally when you have these prophecies, these burdens, God gives a burden to the prophet, and he says, this is what I want you to write or say to the people. And I want you to take what I said to you and tell them, this is what I said. But Habakkuk's burden is delivered in a different way. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. So it's unique to get to look, see, look in, kind of look over the shoulder, if you will, of the prophet when he says things candidly to God and God responds to him. So he, he asks a question and God gives him an answer. He asks another question and God gives him an answer. Then something else kind of interesting happens. We'll get into that. But it's a very simple book. It's quite, quite wonderful when you're teaching through a book that's simple and, and can be read in seven minutes. If you didn't read it, I hope you feel awfully guilty right now. You seriously didn't read a seven-minute book? You pig me. You spiritual pig me. Shame on you, you know. Always read these things. Let's think about it. When we get into some big books, you know, we're going to go through the, we're going to fly with the New Testament. And I'm looking forward to that. This has been enriching for me, and I've, I've really enjoyed and been encouraged and helped by these minor, minor prophets. And this one in particular, this simple three-chapter book, which is not difficult at all for us to understand and, and comes to our hearts just when we need it because we're always dealing with things that we wish were different. And so it was Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk is simple, it's straightforward, and it's not difficult to understand. It goes like this. In Habakkuk, you have the prophet's question, which we just read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What is his question? His question is about Judah. Why are you letting my people behave the way they're behaving? Why are you letting them do that? Your people... Why is it there's no justice? Why have they ignored you? Why are we in this dark apostasy? Why don't you do something about this God? That's what he's saying. So he's asking a question now about Judah. Now then in chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 11, God is going to answer Habakkuk. going to give him the answer. And here we have it, chapter 1 and verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. That's like one of those greeting card verses, isn't it? If you just like take it out of its context, it sounds all wonderful. I'm going to do something like you've never seen before. Oh, that's so nice. I'll put it on my coffee cup. Oh, I keep reading. <laughs> I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. That's another name for the Babylonians. They're going to come sweeping in and they're going to judge you. So here you have Habakkuk saying, God, why are you letting Judah behave this way? And God says, wait till you see what I do. I'm going to let them be judged by Babylon. And then verse 6 says, Indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter, hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're terrible, they're dreadful, their judgment and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes. He transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing his power to his God. So the answer that God gives him, his reply is, I'm going to use the Chaldeans to judge Judah. Now how do you suppose Habakkuk feels about that? Habakkuk says, you can't do that. How can you do that to your people? How can you judge your people with those people? I mean, our people are bad, but they're lots worse. How can you do that? I I don't know about you, but when I read something like this, I kind of see the 9-11 thing. 
how God, and if you, you know, you know, I think preachers get in a lot of trouble when there's a national disaster and then the preachers suggest that the nation might look for any sin in their life which may have resulted in that judgment. But preachers get in trouble for that. But they've always done that and that's what they're supposed to do. Like if you're, if you're not guilty, you're going to be good, right? But if you look at your, but you look at your nation and you see that your nation is doing something wrong, like they're into idolatry and immorality and violence and things like that, and God may be pronouncing woes on you, and He may use a nation to judge you. He may use a people to judge you that are even worse than you think you are or maybe haven't had the privileges that your people have had. I kind of see that analogous uh, situation there. Jesus, God responds to Habakkuk, and He says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to judge. So I don't think he probably likes the answer that he got. He then asks another question. He says, God, he basically says to God, God, you, I know you're not like that. I know you're not. That would, he says, God, isn't, wouldn't that be wrong to do that? Wouldn't it be wrong to use a godless nation like that? Wouldn't that be not like you? Is what he's going to say. And you see this in uh, chapter t- uh, 1, and starting there in verse 12, and it goes through the first verse of chapter 2. Let's just read it. This is so short. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? You know, how can you use those people to judge us, he's saying. And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. Why do you make men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them, and they take all of them up with a hook, and they catch them in their net, and they gather them in a drag net, and therefore they rejoice and they're glad, and therefore they sacrifice to their net. Do you see what he's saying? He says, we're like fish in this, like they have a net, and they're going to catch us in their net. Then they're going to worship their net. How can you let a people that worship their net, idolatrous people, how can you let them judge us, your people who aren't as bad as they are? Burn answers to their dragnet because by them they share is some, their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? And then he says something that reminds me of Job. I will stand my watch, set myself on a rampart, watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. I'm going to be quiet, God. What are you going to say to me? What's your answer to that? How can you do that? And then he's quiet, which is probably a really good idea. God, I'm just going to listen now. I've, I've emptied my heart here. I've told you how I feel. What's, what is your answer? I'm going to be quiet. And then the Lord replies. It's interesting. In chapter 2 and verse 2, the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Do you think he did? Do you think he wrote it down? Of course he did, like we're reading it. So he did, yeah. Is it a little bit like Job, right? Write this down. God, every once in a while God says, take a journal. I want you to take a journal. I want you to write this down. It's like you're going to the fair. It's like, how much do I weigh? And so you can't lie. Write it down first and I'll tell you, you know. God says, let me, let me tell you, write this down, and it's going to come to pass. And then you can go back and look at what you wrote down, and you'll see it's what I said. Write this down. I want it written down. <laughs> it's pretty serious. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that 
He may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and will not lie. And though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come and it will not tarry. This is important because he's saying, if you don't see me act right away, still trust me because it's going to happen. If I said it's going to happen, behold the proud, his soul shall is not upright with him. But the just shall live by his faith. And that is the heart of the book right there. And one of the reasons we know that's the heart of the book is because repeated three times in the New Testament in some pretty important places. A just person doesn't live by what he sees. A just person lives by what he knows to be true based on his faith. What he knows to be true about God based on faith. You know, most people you know, they live by their sight. They live by what they can see. They live by the things they can measure. How much money am I going to make? What kind of promises do I have? If I can't see it, if I don't have immediate payoff, I'm not gonna, that's not how we live, right? This is not how we live. We live by faith. And this is true in our salvation, which is what the passages say there in Hebrews 10 and verse 38. When the people are thinking about, maybe Jewish people are thinking about in Hebrews 10, the Jewish people are thinking about going back to the legal system. And he says, no, live by faith. As he quotes this there. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul's making the argument for justification by faith. A just shall live by faith. And the great story of Martin Luther is tied up in that. And in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, in Galatians, again, Paul is making an argument to a, a church that's kind of stumbling kind of backwards into a, a, a bad kind of legalism. Again, the just shall live by faith. And so you're talking about our salvation. God says to Habakkuk, you're not going to live, you're not going you're, you're to operate by what you see and what you can measure, but by what you believe about who I am. And you're going to see that uh, in a minute. How can you do that and still retain your honor? Habakkuk says, and the Lord says, write this down. Trust me and keep silence before me. And Notice then from chapter 2 and verse 5 to the end of chapter 2, there's this real clear literary structure, which is kind of interesting. There are five woes pronounced. And this would be a really good thing for you to study on your own. These are things God really hates, and he's going to judge. So he says, God says, I'm going to judge Babylon. And believe me, I have a record of the things that they've done that I don't like. I'm going to judge. I'm going to get woe to them for these five different things. They're things God hated, and they're things that God still hates. And you'll notice what they are here. First one, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And it's a, again, it's a real clear literary structure. There are five woes, and there's like three little uh, poetic verses under each one of these. Chapter 2, verses 6 uh, through 8. Chapter uh, 2, verse 5. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man. And by the way, notice the reference to wine. It's, it means more than you think. It's going to come up again later. It's, 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 uh, it's a significant uh, thing. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires. Hell is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken to oppress you? 
and you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people will plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Watch for this. When God judges a nation or a person, he, he lets them have more of what they wanted. We want schools without God, courts without God, marriage without God's restrictions. Okay, that's what you get. And it's a judgment. And that's what we want to plunder. Then you'll be plundered. That's what they're saying here. Woe to the plundering. Woe to those who steal, exhort, plunder. They will be plundered. The next woe is to the greedy. Live for stuff. Woe to those who covet evil. This is chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Are you tempted? This is a big temptation for a lot of young people. Are you tempted in this? I heard a boy one time, he was milking cows. He got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he milked cows every morning. He's a pastor's kid. And he saw that his parents didn't have much money, and were always kind of, things were always tight. And he, and he was milking cows one day, and he noticed, uh, he went back in the evening and milking cows in the evening. And so he's back in the evening, he's milking the cows, and he's stretching his back, and he's looking out the window. And a little, and a little black BMW goes by. The BMW belonged to an attorney who had a house on a lake. He owned the entire lake. And he had a house on the lake that he owned, and he had the BMW, and that was his second home, not his first home. And right then and there, the young man looking out the window said, I'm not going to be poor. I'm going to have money. If I have money, I can buy a lot of things that I want. I just don't have to live that way, hand to mouth. If you talk to this young man today, he would tell you that was one of the worst decisions that he ever made, that he would live for money. Some of you, most of you, that are a little bit older, you know that already. But a lot of times young people pulled into this, especially, I'm going to get things. I'm going to, if I had more money than my parents had, things would be better for me. Babylon thinks they can just take what they want, plunder and greed. God says to them, I hate that. Woe to you. And the whole Bible is consistent about that. Greed, covetousness. You don't want to live for money and for things. This is bad. It's a really bad idea. Judgment comes to people who live for money. And then there's the woe to the violent. And these were violent, obviously, 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not the Lord of hosts that peoples labor to feed the fire. Nations weary themselves in vain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't live like that in violence because God's going to eventually take over and his glory is going to be evident everywhere. And so a nation that takes that's involved in ill-gotten gain or people that's involved in ill-gotten gain and a nation that's greedy it only really cares about the economy stupid or a nation that has innocent shed innocent blood would be a nation that might want to be careful that they haven't that they're not falling into the crosshairs of the almighty in judgment and then there is uh, a woe to the immoral and a special twist on immorality here. You ever notice that drinking and immorality go together a lot? You ever notice that? It's really common now to say it's cool to drink, it's okay to drink, and don't preach against drinking and stuff like that. So the whole problem with that is some of the foulest, darkest, ugliest things I have ever heard go right hand in hand with the drinking. 
I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor over 32, 33 years now. I've just heard horror stories, stuff I would not talk about in this sacred desk or, or refer to in this sacred desk because it's connected with the booze, with the alcohol. And a person is like, oh, no, I'm sophisticated. I just have a little wine with my dinner, a little fireplace, a little wine. And they always paint that kind of picture, that kind of innocent picture. And it's not the picture, the TV picture there. And it's not the picture that I get when the council, across the counseling desk. It's filthy. It's vile. It's bad. It's wrong. It's not good. I'll talk more about that. I'll badger you more about that. And reserve the right to badger you more in a moment about that. Woe him who gives drink to his neighbor pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drink, that you may look on his nakedness, you're filled with shame instead of glory, you also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be, upon, uh, will be on your glory, for violence done to Lebanon will cover you in the blunder of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all that dwell in it. Woe to the immoral, that it, and, they're, and they're involved in the, the alcohol. i got a, a minute, so I want you to listen just for a minute to just something the Bible says about alcohol. And um, just hear it from the Word of God. One of the ways, by the way, if you're trying to influence young people, or to, and that is just let the Bible speak for itself about alcohol. Just let the Bible speak for itself about alcohol. When, when you... Uh, when you, when you have questions about alcohol, just read all the Bible has to say uh, about alcohol. And I'm, I'm uh, giving you just a couple of examples tonight. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. If you want wisdom and you're a young person, you want to be wise, I talk to young people a lot of times who say to me, Pastor, I'm a problem with drinking. I just think it's okay. It's okay to drink, and I plan, you know, as I get older to drink, and, you know, the, the idea of going out with friends and having something to drink or going to a nice restaurant and having something to drink, being around people that drink and that. Here's what the Bible says about wine, chapter 20, and to, to young men, if you're wise, wine is a mucker. Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You want to be wise, and that's the big question, what is wise, in areas where... The Bible doesn't specifically delineate every little thing that you're supposed to do, right? Right? It doesn't say. Right? I mean, obviously, is Facebook okay? Where does it say in the Bible? It doesn't talk about Facebook in the Bible. So you have to use wisdom, right? Right? You use wisdom about things like that. You know, I got a big tax return. I didn't, but I'm, I'm using a poetic device. Let's say I got a big tax return, you know? Do I pay down this debt or do I give this to somebody else? Well, you know, the Bible may not specifically tell you that. You have to be wise. Should I drink or not drink? Study the Bible. What does it say? Listen to Proverbs 23 in verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. A harlot is a deep pit and a seductress is a narrow well, and she also lies in wait for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. In other words, this is, again, it could be said about uh, uh, immoral young men, but it's written to young men, so it's talking about immoral young women. And it's, it puts the gluttony, drunkenness, immorality in the Bible, a lot of times they go right together. Right? You want to really mess up your life, get involved in drunkenness, gluttony, immorality, not good. You'll, you'll probably die young and, and go to hell or destroy your life. It's just bad. 
And you're getting a warning here. But listen to what it says in verse 29. It's very poetic, it's very powerful, very wise. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. Because at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of a sea, and like one who lies at the top of a mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I didn't feel it. When I wake, I will seek another drink. And she sounds like it wouldn't be really wise. It was an old Levi Wister friend of mine who said, Bud, you'd be wiser if you never touched this stuff. So, that's what he always said. But, Bud, wiser? Yeah. I thought it was funny when he told me, but you obviously don't have that sophisticated a sense of humor like I do. There's some pretty strong warnings about alcohol. In this case, in, back in Habakkuk, he's saying, you're giving people drink in order to look on their nakedness, and I'm going to judge you for that. Now, what is interesting about that is, who's he talking to? Babylon. So did Babylon fall? How did they fall? Oh, they fell on the night of a feast when they had a drunken feast and they were using the alcohol, they're they're pouring alcohol into holy vessels that they got from the temple in Jerusalem and God said, you're weighed in the balances and found wanting. Amazing, isn't it? Habakkuk's prophecy comes true in explicit detail. Babylon's all free on the booze. And along with it is violence, immorality, greed. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Folks, go any direction you want to go from this church. Go any direction you want to go from this church. Stop at like the first business. It will probably be stacked to the ceiling with alcohol. And you know, there was a time it wouldn't be controversial for a pastor to cry out against the evils of alcohol. I just will tell you that in my home, I pray that never one person in my family ever takes the first drink of alcohol. That's my prayer. I want to influence my children, my wife and children. Lois had a little beer problem one time. Uh, she wanted to make the lawn green. And so she, a few years ago, she said she was going to, this is the trouble when I get away from my notes. This always happens to me. People like it, but, you know, it always gets me in trouble. She's wanting to have this beautiful, lush, green lawn. And she hears some knucklehead told her that if she puts beer in the sprayer, and I'm like, don't, don't do that. And she says, yeah, I'm just going to buy one beer, and I'm going to mix it with the, I'm like, no, honey, no, don't, don't do that. That's not good. We live in a small town, and people just love that kind of thing, you know. Ken, would you let Debbie buy a beer for the lawn? Fast enough? No. <laughs> Me neither, Steve. Two guys. Um... I just wouldn't do it. Jerry, what do you think? No beer. Yeah, see, we're three guys. No beer. Look at that. (laughs) We always say we got three 50-year-olds and one guy we hired because he acts like he's 50. (laughs) Well, see, now your pastors know enough to stay completely away from the beer and try to keep their wives away from it, too. (laughs) So Lois said she's going to go buy a beer, put it in this prayer. I'm like, don't do that. And the Bible says you're supposed to obey your husband, right? And a few times in her life she has not done that. This was one of them. 
So she drives out of town, like 20 miles out of town, 15 miles out of town to the west, goes to this little store, buys a beer, and she pours it in her thing and immediately goes back and cashes the, gets the ca- money back for the can to return on a can. And she brings it back and she prays on the lawn. I come home that night and she says, I treated the lawn with beer. And I was like, I'm going to pray it dies. I'm going to pray it dies. This is, was the worst looking lawn you have ever seen in your life. And the moral of the story is that the same thing will happen to your guts if you drink. So I'm just saying. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. The things that go with alcohol, the things that generally go with alcohol, rebellion against God, false religion, filthy immoral things, are not things you want to have in your life. And Babylon was famous for that. Book of Ephesians is aimed at that. I want to suggest to you that when you look at strong drink, when you look at unmixed alcohol, when you look at alcohol like we produce alcohol in our nation today, in the volume in which we produce it, in the distribution, the way we distribute it, in the potency of that alcohol, you're not really talking about the exact same thing that the Bible's talking about when it's talking about alcohol. If you say that it is, you're being foolish. You're not carefully studying the Bible. And I'm just, when you, when you look in here in Habakkuk and you have this passage, you have a nation that's in rebellion and hatred against God and the alcohol and the pride and the rebellion, they're all mixed in there together. And I'm just warning you to just decide, stay away from it. So I want to influence my family to stay away from it. And I want to influence anybody else in my circle of influence to stay away from it. So can I just say to you as a pastor, you know, whatever would help you Make a wise decision to just say alcohol is not going to be a part of our family, not a part of our family gathers as much as possible. I'm not going to have a part. I would suggest that you do that. Now, of course, obviously, if you're a member of the church, way back in the history of our church, wise men and women put that into the covenant of our church. And it's one of the things that makes the church a good church is that people are willing to say in a covenant, in a covenantal commitment to one another, we're just not going to drink alcohol here in this church, here or outside the church. You understand? Folks that are members of the church are just not going to drink alcohol. We've decided to stay away from it. And I strongly recommend that. You may need to read more about that. You may have some questions, and I'm kind of running a little rabbit trail here, but you may have some questions about that, and people have asked you questions that kind of make you confused about that. It doesn't, didn't Jesus turn water into wine, and doesn't it look like it's okay to drink in moderation? And, and I would just suggest you, we'll be doing some writing about this, but I would suggest that you study that very, very, very carefully, and I would hope that I put enough doubt in your mind that you can't do that without sin. Stay away from alcohol, from the things that are surrounding uh, alcohol, and the times that you should be around alcohol would be times when you're loving somebody into Christ, you have a family member that has alcohol, and you're loving them, and you're showing some deference to them and kindness and love to them, but you're not partaking in that yourself. This is a warning from you know, all your pastors. We all agree on this. So that in our, here in our church, we just warn you about that, the stuff that goes along with that. But here, here I have gone on and on. I have some other things that you could read about that, and I would recommend if you're interested in reading that and studying that, that you ask me, and I'll help you with that. We'll be writing uh, some things. I've written some things, but I, it's a very serious matter. It's a very important thing. Here you have a group of people that are being judged by God, and, of course, when you don't, you don't have to look very far, and you find that alcohol is involved. Immorality, alcohol, usually they go hand in hand. And then woe to the idolater, which is hugely horrible and f- foolish in chapter uh, 2 there, in verse uh, 18, 
what profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Can't say or do anything that's not alive. Your idols are not alive. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Lord has something to say. The true God, that's what it says in verse 20, the true God is speaking God, an acting God, a powerful God, an idol is dumb, a dumb idol, can't speak. Don't serve a God who can't deliver you in the end. And so that's God's reply to Habakkuk. Before we go on, let me just remind you, God hates and He judges these things that He says that are woes. God still ha- always has and still hates ill-gotten gain. You include the lottery in that. You include dis- dishonest things in that. Ill-gotten gain, God still judges. Greed, violence, immorality, drunkenness, immoral talk, immoral behavior. God judges them. God judges them. It's popular today to get involved in shady talk and dirty talk. God will judge dirty talk. God will judge immoral behavior. It's serious. This is the epidemic. And if it's a part of your life, if it's a part of your day-to-day life, can I just suggest flee from the judgment of God? Ask God to deliver you, give you a new heart. Get to the cross. Learn to walk in the Spirit so that you would be delivered from these things which God hates and God's judgment is on idolatry. Can I ask you, do you hate these things? God hates these things. Do you hate these things? Do you hate these things? May God deliver us from these things. There's a fifth thing, a final thing, and this is what happens. Whoops. Yeah. I'm going to go through the prophet's question, reply, another question, the Lord's reply, and then this is what happens. After God replies, what does Habakkuk do? Habakkuk delivers a song of praise. The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. There is a reference there in chapter 3 and verse 1, a name I could not possibly pronounce, Shigianoth. And students of the Bible aren't really sure what it means. It's probably a musical notation. Yet Habakkuk then delivers, obviously, a psalm of praise to God. O Lord, I've heard your speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. If you, it's interesting. You take chapter 3 and verse 2, where he breaks into this psalm when God says, I'm going to judge Judah with Babylon, and I'm going to judge Babylon with many woes, because then he says... In wrath, remember mercy. In chapter 1, he says, God, when are you going to judge? When are you going to judge? When are you going to judge? When the record here shows he's gotten to know God a little bit better, he goes, God, while you're judging, can you remember to show mercy? I guess evidence of growth. His glory covered the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His brightness is like the light. He had rays flashing in his hand, and there's power in his was hidden. And before him went pestilence and Fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. The everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. The way, his ways are everlasting. 
I saw the tents of Cushan and the affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and your chariots of salvation? Your bow was quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. And on he goes in his psalm. And what is he saying in his psalm? He's, he's talking about the power of God and, and uh, exalting in the power of God and affirming his trust in God. In verses 1 and 2, he's asking God to be merciful. And the closer you get to God and the more you know him, the more you are eager for him to extend his mercy to others. And then in verses 3 through 15, he's talking about who God is and the big emphasis on who God is. Now get this. In Job, when he has the same problem, it's a big, long book, and a lot of the book is about who God is. And a lot of it is Job looking in creation at what God's power in creation and saying, God, you are so powerful. It's, it, the, so when you have these questions that are ringing out your soul that you don't have answers to, you want to do what the prophets did, and that is look at not what God is doing right now, but who God is. Remind yourself about who God is. And in this way, one of the best ways to do that is to sing or write a song of praise. Is to praise Him. When in doubt, praise Him is the idea. And then his, his uh, response, verse 16, When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When He comes up to the people, He will invade them with His troops. His response is one of great humility. He's not like shaking his fist at God. He's very, very humble. He's trembling before God. Let me just share some lessons from Habakkuk tonight. One, when you have a question, ask him. That's what Habakkuk did. It's okay to pour your heart out to God. There is a kind of a reverent desperation to take out. You know, a lot of times we kind of sanitize the things in the Bible. Everybody's supposed to always be singing a cheerful song and always whistling and never to show any doubt. And that's just not true in the Bible. People that were commended by God often had some really ragged doubt. And then they expressed it in direct ways. God, how long am I going to have to cry out to you and you won't answer me? That's what he does. And he makes it into the Bible with that. When you have a question, go ahead and ask him. When you're hurting or you're doubtful or you have difficulty. And then when you doubt, praise him. This is what they did. There's many examples of this in a Bible Pray, look, think of the Psalms in the Bible. Psalms of Moses, Psalms of Deborah, the beautiful Psalm of Hannah. Beautiful Psalms in the Bible. Psalms of the women, remember when they're going out to meet the warriors. Psalms of David, Psalms of Hezekiah, Psalms of Jonah, Zechariah, Mary, Simeon in the Bible. You get it? There's a pattern here. I, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I could have gone home before I preached today and my soul would have been very full because of the singing of the psalms and the sims, the choir. Just, you need that. When you don't have other things that you're sure about, you go and you sing psalms and affirm who God is. And that's why our songs should be rich with who God is. Because when, we, when our songs are rich with who God is, that's like jet fuel for the soul. That's what we need. We need to just be reminded, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know who you are. I don't understand why, but I understand who. I'm going to praise you and affirm who you are. That's what I'm going to do. There's something here. There's a great secret here, if you will. When you have a question, ask him. When you have a doubt, praise him. And the Bible says the just will live by faith in who God is when they don't understand what God is doing. 
And how many times have you had a circumstance where maybe you lost a job and you just thought, this is the end of the world? It's not supposed to be like this. And you live long enough to look back and say, God, now that I look back, I see what you were doing. But during the time, you didn't see what God was doing. You just knew who he was. You see, if a woman leaves her husband and abandons him, God is still God. If a man leaves his wife and children and abandons them, God is still God. If the economy is good, God is God. If the economy is bad, God is God. If I have a lot of money, God is God. If, the, if I don't have much, he's still God. He's still who he is. And this is, I think, the lesson, a huge lesson throughout the Bible is truly here in Habakkuk, and that is when we have a question, we ask him. When we have a doubt, we praise him because we're going to root our life in who God is, not what he's doing right now. We might see something he's doing and not understand it, but we root our life in who he is. And then we embrace God even when we don't understand him. Habakkuk's name, name means embrace. His name means embrace. And this is what he ends up doing after he's had this dialogue with God. He's trembling. Then he embraces God. You can see that when you look at the end of the book. And I remember as a little boy reading through my Bible and finding this to be... I was on the school bus as a, as a young boy, and I was reading my Bible on the way to school. And something about verse 17 through 19 just thrilled my heart. And I thought, that's true, God. No matter what happens to me, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to live for you. And, that, and I remember marking it in my Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off, from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls you can put anything else in there you wanted to if my wife leaves me if my husband leaves if my kids don't turn out right if i lose my job if i have cancer yet i will rejoice in the lord and i will joy in the god of my salvation and it's not just determination he's showing it's not. Don't misunderstand. This is not just good old, you know, bootstrap religion. It's not determination because he says, The Lord is my strength, and He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on the high hills. I'm looking to God to help me now, even though I have no idea what He's doing. I'm going to trust who He is. I'm going to sing praises. I'm going to write praises. I'm going to sing praises. If I can't sing, I'm going to go and be around other people who are singing. I'm going to let their singing kind of wash over me. I'm going to let the praises come over me. I used to love doing this. It seems really weird, but I used to, when the kids were little, and it was a delightful time when they were all little, and you could, on my day off, we'd put them in the van, and we'd go places and do things, and I would always try to plot, plot something fun if I could. A lot of times I would just say to the kids, hey, go get in the van. They hated that. You know, I'd, I'd do it to Lois, too. It's really not right. But I'd say, get, get in the van. You know, well, how, what are we supposed to wear? Just get in the van. Oh, come on, just go get in the van. Come on, let's, we're going. Where are we going? What you, it doesn't matter. Just get in. I don't, I don't know. I love doing that. And I would have these ideas, these plans. I didn't want to tell them I wanted to be a surprise. I wanted them to be delighted. I wanted them to be happy. Sometimes it is simple. We'd go up in the Amish country. We'd have a picnic in the Amish country, kind of horse around and have a day. But I wouldn't tell them ahead if I'd just say, get in the van. 
And well, now they've gotten old and sophisticated, and they won't go anywhere with me until I give them all the details. And Lois will every once in a while, which is really not a bad idea, but the kids are like, they're way beyond that now. I'm like, get in the van, they're like, you get in the van. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere until I know where we're going. So it's the way it works, they're older, you know. But I loved it when they were little like that, and I could just tell them what to do, and they did it. <laughs> and, you know, because obviously I had something that I wanted to be, I wanted them to do it, I wanted them to trust me. I didn't want them to evaluate what I was doing. I just wanted them to trust, well, I'm your dad. If I'm going somewhere and i got something planned for you, it's going to be something good because that's who I am. That's the kind of dad I am. I'm not the kind of dad that takes kids and makes them do stuff they don't want to do. The kind of dad who takes kids places and they're going to remember it and like it and love it. That's what I wanted to do. When I was um, doing a retreat with some young men one day, I... Uh, I realized that these guys were a little over-analytical. And I, and I said to them, um, oh, I, want you to, I want you to come with me. And they're like, where are we going? I go, just, just what I want you to do is I'm just going to you know, tell you what to do, and then you, you, just do, you just do it. And so they go, what? I go, yeah, just you know, whatever, you know, I just tell you, just, just do it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I go, yeah, come with me. So they're like, they're looking, you just hear him grumbling to each other. Like, what? Yeah, what are we doing? We're going. I'm like, come with me. So I walk, we're up, at, we're up in a UP, and we're in this beautiful place, and we got these red kayaks. We have a red kayak for each kid. And I go down to the lake, and I get in this kayak, and I just start paddling across this beautiful lake. And the kids are like, where are we going? I'm like, follow me. And I just paddled off down the lake. Three or four of the kids are like eager beavers, and they come up around me like they're going to pass me. I'm like, that's ignorant. They don't know where I'm going, you know. Don't pass me. I didn't say it. So a guy gets way off here, and then I, I darted back this part of the lake, and now he had to do all that paddling to catch up, and he goes, well, where are we going anyway? And I'm like, just, just follow me. And we did that like for three or four hours all through these chain of lakes and hiking and carrying a kayaks over and they were so irritated with me. <laughs> they were so frustrated with me. Finally, we got back. We went in. We built a fire. We sat down in the lodge. And I said, okay, did you guys learn anything? They're like, no. <laughs> like, we're, we didn't. You know. Seriously? Nothing? Nothing? Did you get anything in from that? They're like, what? I go, did you notice I just told you? What did I tell you? They were going, you kept saying, just do what I say. Just do what I say. You want know to tell you? Those guys that went on that trip, by the time that we got to the end of that trip, because they kind of yielded their hearts, I really believe they had learned a great lesson. Not as about me. It wasn't about me at all. But it's a lesson that we all have to learn. That is, we trust God's good heart. And we go wherever he says to go. We do whatever he says to do. We endure whatever he asks us to endure based on that we know who he is. That day... That week, I took the guys on this beautiful tour up in the UP. We went to some of the most beautiful places, Bond Falls and Lake Superior and the Porcupine Mountains. And I have a picture of it. I, I thought it was kind of cool. It was one of my favorite pictures. We're up on Lake Superior, and we had all walked on. We had all taken this uh, prayer walk all along for a couple hours along Lake Superior. There's a couple of guys that aren't in the picture, obviously one that took it. And we'd gotten through the end of that, and we, we, we bowed to pray together. And these guys, every once in a while, I'll hear from them. And they will tell me, that was one of the most beautiful weeks of my life. I learned so much during that week. I wish I could go do that again. And I feel the same way. 
And one day you will come to the end of your days and we'll be with the Lord. And you will say, I wish that I could do that again. Lord, I trusted you. I believe you. I follow you. We're going to sing a song tonight. And then we have just a moment. Uh, Craig Wallace is going to come to close in prayer. And before he closes in prayer, we're going to sing the song. Craig Wallace will come to close in prayer. But before we close in prayer, we have some uh, action that we need, we need to take about some members tonight before we go home. Pastor, come lead us in 